The U.S. mainstream media, that is the capitalist-owned media, has gone all out to support and sympathize with protests that have taken place in China in recent days. Their hostility, meaning the U.S. media hostility to the Chinese government, is very evident. Today, we'll talk about the myths and facts about the protests in China. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking again with Tings Chak. She's in Beijing. Tings is a researcher at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. She's a member of the Dongsheng News Collective, and she's the author of the pamphlet, Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Tings, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brian. Tings, thank you once again for joining. I know the time difference is such that it's it must be very, very late where you are. We really appreciate your joining the show. The U.S. media, as I mentioned in the introduction, is breathlessly reporting that a mass movement is sweeping through China. And it's clear from the prominence and the dominance of the headlines and the stories in the mainstream media. I'm talking about banner headlines, front page news, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, that the U.S. media, very political media, is excited about the protests. I mean, that's important because, you know, we've been involved in lots of protests here in the United States. We rarely get any sympathetic coverage by these same media, but they're very, very, very excited and sympathetic to the protests in China. And as I mentioned, the coverage is also extremely hostile. The animus towards the Chinese government is so obvious and so evident. So there's a lot to unpack about the protests. And I want to talk about the social and political implications of them, the size of the protests, who's involved. We want to go over some of that, but let's start first with the issue at hand, which is the Chinese government's COVID policies. I mean, these policies have been pretty much in place since 2020. They've gone through different iterations, but there's a core zero COVID policy that's been affirmed and reaffirmed once again by the Chinese government. Let's just talk about the COVID policy, where it is right now, what its impact has been. Again, for our audience, especially for those outside the United States who might not know this, 100 million Americans, I'll say it again, 100 million Americans have gotten COVID since 2020 and more than a million are dead. But let's start with the Chinese government's actual policies. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to start because one of the things about the zero COVID policy in China is it's not a one size fits all. It's not just one thing. And in fact, has, you know, I think the word dynamic in it, which indicates that it's a thing of experimentation has actually constantly changed as the virus has changed and as the science has developed. 
remembering that, you know, in the end of 2019, when the virus first broke out, it was an unknown virus to the world. And a lot of that had to be responses quite quickly to respond to something that is historic in that truest sense. And I've lived through these changes since being here in, in 2020. And what's interesting to see with this, and we'll get into the protests a little bit more and, and general responses from the people, but that China is actually going through a phase of easing its policy. You know, interestingly, the sort of some of the, the street protests that we've seen lately is coming at the heels of this situation right now. For example, two weeks ago, the Chinese central government announced the 20 measures, which is basically decreasing requirements on several fronts. One of them is including the international rivals. Of course, China still has mandatory quarantines for people who are arriving from international travel. So they've been cutting that in terms of for requirements of how many days. Now it's called the five plus three, which is five days in a hotel quarantine and three at home. But in addition to this, there's been easing for in terms of the isolation time that is required for anyone who's had close contact with confirmed cases, as well as promoting vaccinations particularly among the vulnerable groups who still have not yet gotten the full vaccinations. And what I think an important part I want to mention is this removal of mass testing as a strategy unless this is necessary and avoiding this what's called the excessive COVID measures. But for a country the size of China, 1.4 billion people, we always have this contradiction or this process of how to translate central government policy to local implementation. And so this easing has happened in varied ways across the country at the local levels. And it's also had, I think it's, we can say that it's had a different reactions. Some local governments are a little bit hesitant to kind of move from this more rigid or more strict zero COVID policy to something that is, you know, this process of easing is quite complicated. And we're seeing also in some cases where local officials are struggling to respond, you know, keeping, I think, sometimes in this sort of bureaucrat's mind of being afraid to be held responsible for any new outbreaks, but at the same time getting, you know, the orders from above to kind of move to this next phase in this dynamic zero COVID policy. But I also want to stress that this is happening in a very complicated moment. China just yesterday registered 73,000 new cases. And that means it's the biggest wave we've seen since the pandemic broke out back in 2019. So, yes, there is kind of questions of people being exhausted. People, you know, living with a pandemic for three years is very difficult. We have these new measures being put in place. How do you define this, you know, ban on excessive COVID measures? You have people also at the, you know, having disputes and disagreements with how their local residential community are interpreting some of these central government policies. So I would say that, you know, we're going through this period right now. It's complex, but it's not a simple let's open up and throw out the zero COVID policy. But, you know, what the government has been calling this finding a soft landing out of this very, very complex situation and a huge challenge. And and to be honest, I don't think any other countries have have really tried this, have tried to kind of move forward with the pandemic in this way while protecting human lives first and foremost, but also changing with the science and as the sort of experimentation of how to deal with it, as we've been seeing in the last three years. One thing that happened in the United States, Tings, was when the lockdown started, again, this was after the U.S. had forewarning that the virus was coming, 
members of the U.S. Congress, including leaders of the U.S. Senate, were briefed by U.S. intelligence as early as January 2020. And the U.S. started lockdowns a couple months later. 60 million people lost their jobs. 60 million people. There was then a government relief effort to try to mitigate what happened in China? I mean, let's just draw some comparisons if we can. Obviously, China is in a developing country. One out of every four or maybe one out of every five humans in the world is in China. So the, the management of a society of that size is great. But, you know, one of the things that, that's happened is there's been the economic outcome for lots of working folks, especially in 2020. Many people lost their homes. Right now, as the rent moratorium, the eviction moratorium is lifting, there's a prediction that there will be a wave of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of evictions. Let's just talk about the impact on China. Obviously, it's impacted the economy, but probably in far different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's an important point that you mentioned that China is still a developing country as much as it is the world's largest developing country and the second largest economy in the world. But one of the things that we see is, is the healthcare infrastructure. It is still very much, I think, lacking the requirements that is necessary to kind of let sort of COVID run wild, let's say. One prime example is comparing ICU beds between the U.S. and China, intensive care units. And from the last that I checked, we have in China about three beds per 100,000 citizens. In the U.S., it's about 25, which is seven times higher than what we have in China. Not saying that, you know, the U.S. medical system and healthcare infrastructure is adequate, but then you, it makes you understand sort of the state of the infrastructure. And that is one of the reasons about why some of these, let's say, more rigid measures were taken since day one when the virus appeared in Wuhan in the lockdown that lasted, you know, two and a half months and saw a pretty quick control, swift and quick control though perhaps quite strict as a measure. But one of the reasons being is the healthcare infrastructure that is inadequate for a population of this size. So one of the things that the government has been trying to do is increase the ICU capacity and the number of hospital beds, but training the amount of doctors and medical staff necessary to staff that is going to take time. And part of this process in the last three years is also try to build up that capacity, build up that workforce, the actual workers to be able to manage a kind of epidemic of this level if it were to be spread. And I mean, we have to think that China is massive population. I mean, compared to the U.S., which is already a huge country, it's you know about four and a half times the population of the U.S., and we've seen, I think, at the last time I checked was 1.09 million deaths in the U.S., if just using these rough numbers to count that, we would be looking towards 5 million people dying in China. And that just isn't acceptable to the Chinese government. And so some of these measures that have been taken is to put human life first. I mean, right now, even in, given it, uh, China being the first country where this virus was sort of attacked, there's about just over 5,000 deaths in the last three years. And even in these new waves that we've been seeing, it's been very little, low numbers of deaths. But it requires some of these measures around the zero COVID policy to keep that at bay. At the same time, amping up vaccinations, creating the infrastructure necessary, training the adequate workforce to be able to handle this. And this is the process of finding that soft landing 
as the country is easing its policies around COVID. Tings, I was reading earlier today an article that appeared in the spring, I think May 2022, in Reuters. And it was based on an article in the journal, the esteemed scientific journal Nature. And here's the headline. Dropping zero COVID policy in China without safeguards risks 1.5 million lives, according to the study. And then the article goes over some of the facts that you mentioned, the, the shortage of ICU beds in China. You mentioned that seven times more per capita ICU beds, intensive care unit beds. So when people get very, very sick, they go into the ICU. If they don't go into the ICU, if those beds aren't available, they die. Where I am in New York, Tings, in the spring of 2020, there were refrigerator trucks with the bodies of the dead in Elmhurst and Queens. It was the epicenter of the epicenter of the of the epidemic. And, you know, the country was being overrun. But if you think about that and remember that, you know, people were in gurneys and in corridors and then they died and then there was no place to put their bodies. I mean, it was awful. And you're in a country that's 1.4 billion people with the number of ICU beds available so diminished by a ratio of seven to one, the impact just can't be overstated. And again, the Reuters article, which is an article that's, you won't see this right now in the mainstream media in the US. It's a like a, it's an objective article. It's just an objective assessment. But now it's like the Washington Post, which was against lockdown protests in the United States or in Canada by these right-wing political forces is now cheering these protesters as if they're championing freedom. Their goal is freedom. And the Communist Party of China is, you know, taking away their freedom when obviously the Chinese government is trying to manage something that's real, an epidemic in a country that's still developing where the ICU beds are not as available in the United States In the United States, we have normalized death. There's a normalization. It's kind of like, no big deal. The numbers that you just mentioned, 1.9 million dead, it's not a sensational number anymore. It's normal. As the government decided to open. Anyway, when you think about the impact on Chinese society, I mean, it might be that some parts of Chinese society haven't experienced what we've experienced in the United States. And so the idea of COVID is this grave danger. It may be less pronounced. I don't know. I mean, what's your sense of it? I mean, there are other parts of the population are probably afraid to go to work. Anyway, it's obviously a mixed bag in, in terms of any society. No, I think it's it's an important question, you know, freedom for what exactly, you know? I think in many of the Western capitalist countries, you know, this high levels of individualism have really kind of culminated in this question of freedom to die, freedom to get COVID, freedom to give COVID, you know? And the fact is, we can go into the protests a little bit more, but largely there's small groupings, you know, maybe a few hundred people in major cities, young people in their 20s, students, you know. It's quite unclear the demands, I think, actually, the white paper says much about it, you know. But the thing is, I don't think we can use this to say that this is a litmus test or a pulse on what the general society feels. Because the thing is, there has been a huge cost 
to maintaining a zero COVID policy. There's a social cost, which means that collectively we have to give up some kinds of privileges in order to protect these millions of lives, particularly the most vulnerable, you know, knowing that China is an aging society. And, you know, you gave the Nature Journal estimates of 1.5 million people and actually in three months, which is a quick amount of time, even the government's own estimation just of elders alone, we would see, you know, 600,000 people die of zero COVID was removed of those who are above 60. And these are using much you know, more conservative kind of models, for example, using the Singapore mortality rates, which is much less than, for example, the US. So that being said, I guess there's a question of, you know, there is a social cost. I've lived through the COVID. I was in sh- living in Shanghai at the time during the lockdown, you know, a few months ago. It's not easy. It is exhausting. It means we have to mask up. It means that we have to get tested quite often. It means that we have to sometimes experience short periods of lockdown. And what is that for? It's so that we are protecting millions of lives. And I know that at this point where there's a sort of, you know, living with COVID or, you know, COVID is over, there's almost a quick amnesia about, you know, the scenes that you just described, the horrific scenes of of death and destruction that COVID was. And I would say that, you know, China hasn't thrown the towel yet, like many countries have, still trying to figure out how to live with this virus without it having to cost millions of people's of lives. And I think, you know, during the last three years, China's just suffered, you know, nonstop criticism, no matter what it does, But at the end of it, it's about protecting human life. And then, of course, there's also the economic costs. You know, I think it's not just a symbolic thing that the government, the central government, decided to suspend having an annual GDP growth rate because of knowing how challenging COVID is, putting people first instead of putting profits first. And that's important because this GDP growth rate is a really important part of economic sort of planning of the country. And the central government says, let's try to do our best. Let's try to do our best. Right now, the conditions are extremely hard and it means huge amounts of economic investment, but it means putting people over profits. And I just want to point to one thing that I think is quite interesting, an article that came out yesterday by the Zhejiang Daily, which is really the publicity department of the party. So this is not a central government kind of official statement, but let's not forget that also Zhejiang was the province where President Xi Jinping was governor for five years. And it focused on a few things. And I think the title says a lot about this point. If I could translate it is putting people first is not the same as putting anti-epidemic measures first. And what is that? I mean, this is also a response, obviously, to some of the discontent that people are seeing, the exhaustion that people are seeing three years into COVID is not easy. But one of the things is reminding, I think it's a message to the sort of lower level grassroots officials that what is the policy about? It's about protecting human life, not about upholding a sort of bureaucratic view, you know? It's not about you know, for example, it's actually kind of criticism of some of the local uh, examples where people are still implementing kind of lockdowns in residential communities when the central government is saying, no, we should only use that as a last resort measure right now. And I think it just says a lot, you know, about what the intentions are. And we can't forget that at the end of it, it's about protecting human life, but with some social collective costs that come with it. But I think for me, I mean, living here for the last three years throughout the whole pandemic, I think those social costs are worth it when I think about the millions of people around me that did not have to die from a preventable virus. 
So again, I think these are important points, Tings, and I want to I want to stick with it a little bit. You know, again, because China is presented as this monolith, like there's the Communist Party, there's the Standing Committee of the Central Committee, there's in particular Xi Jinping. There's this idea that this there is this kind of dictatorial system where Xi Jinping makes a statement or issues a decree, and then the Standing Committee and all of the other dominoes fall into place. And what you're saying basically is the Chinese government is a central government giving direction to a country of a huge country, physically huge, huge landmass, and the largest population in the world. So if they say, look, we're going to go through a new, we're going to start to change our zero COVID policies. We're going to try to experiment. We're going to try to open up a little bit. We're going to use lockdowns as a final last resort rather than as a sort of a, an instant reaction. So there's the beginning of the opening. And then local governments in this vast, huge country are sort of interpreting those directives or those that guidance in different ways. So the population is hearing, on the one hand, we're going to open up, we're going to move away from the strict sort of enforcement of zero COVID. It's going to be a new era. And yet at some levels, in some areas, based on local or provincial decision makers, that might not feel or may be wrongly interpreted by the population, but you can see how there could be a discordant sort of understanding. My point being, it's not like a monolith. China is a complicated place. Go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, I think we we see this across the board, not just with this very complicated, you know, measures around COVID in terms of how to deal with such a great societal challenge. But this is basically the complexities of central government in a country so big and local implementation. We've seen that at city levels. We see that, you know, for example, how different cities reacted, you know, whether it's Shanghai or Guangzhou or Beijing in different moments and, and to some more successful examples and some less successful examples. I think we can't forget that China is a pretty scientific society or culture in the sense that there is a lot of experimentation. Usually a lot of policy, not just around COVID, is tested in one region, one pilot zone first, and then maybe compared with another one. And it, the process takes years before it becomes a kind of nationwide policy. And this is just how things get done here. And so I think right now in this kind of, it's a big shift in this easing. And it's going through a very complicated and difficult moment of how it lands at the local levels. And so I think when I pointed to this article, I think it's quite interesting because he even said things like, you know, local bureaucrats or local officials should not be abusing their powers, you know, of because it's sometimes easier just to implement a lockdown than actually dealing with the kind of more precise and scientific measures of how to kind of in the more minutia of dealing with a case as opposed to sort of a mass, you know, let's close down the whole community when there's one case. Has that person actually come into contact with other people? Has that person been inside their home or, you know, kind of removed from those kinds of contacts rather than shutting down a whole community? And the thing is, you know, China or Chinese people, like any human being, I think, is complains and reacts. And when, when they see abuses of power, they will respond. And so we are seeing kind of, you know, some clashes or conflicts, specifically with residents and their community committees around this question of not implementing how this interpretation of the central government's easing. 
I don't want to put that necessarily with the same kind of bucket or kind of monolith as some of the protests we've seen inside the cities. I'm, there's just many ways that people can express their discontent and kind of air those grievances. And that's just part of normal society. There's many means to do that, but I think it would be a mistake to think that there's some sort of mass kind of discontent that's taken place represented by these protests in the streets. Very interesting. You know, when, when protests happen in the United States, which are very common, usually they're met with a lot of hostility from authorities, from the police in particular. During the uprising against racism after George Floyd was killed in May 2020, protesters went to the streets all over the United States, 25 to 30 million people. The police attacked the movement. I was part of it. I mean, with tear gas and non-lethal weapons. I mean, all kinds of weapons that were directed against the population. 107 cities experienced mass tear gassing by police. 107 cities when people were out in the streets protesting against racism. But then after the fact, the same media will say, you know, it's great. And Americans have the right to protest. And that makes us really distinct. It makes us exceptional. We have this First Amendment right. Now, during that entire summer, Tings, when people did go out in protest, there was never any media coverage that the U.S. government was about to be toppled, that the U.S. capitalist system was going to be overthrown, that there was going to be a revolution in America. There was none of that talk. But here in China, in the recent days, you have people coming out in relatively small numbers in a number of cities and saying, look, we don't like these COVID policies or we insist on some expedited you know, sort of opening. Maybe some of them are political. I don't know. But in the few instances where somebody had yelled out, down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party. I mean, there's no evidence at all that this was like some mass thing happening. Every media outlet, Washington Post, said the rising discontent that's sweeping China shows that the like almost as if the Chinese government is tottering right now and lacks social, political credibility such that its hold on power is fragile. Again, that's, I think, a myth. But anyway, you're there. I want to see what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, I spent many years as an organizer back in Canada, migrant justice organizer. And I think, wow, if only, you know, the media cared so much about the work we do, that would be fantastic. You know, one banner drop can get become international news and that's wonderful. But I think it says something because I want to make a point is that protests aren't uncommon in China. They might take on a different form. They might have a different sort of social function than in, in non-socialist societies. But I was digging up a kind of, there's been many studies around protests in China. It's a bit outdated, but there was a Tsinghua professor in 2010 that estimated there were something like 180,000 protests a year in China. So that could be hundreds a day in any given day across the country. But I think we have to look at with a very critical eye at which protests get selectively highlighted, you know, by Western corporate media, you know, front page, New York Times, pretty much every single mainstream corporate media of the West has been highlighting this. So I think it says a little bit more about their agenda and the narrative that they're trying to construct than really what's happening in the country. And I, I would, I mean, also say that, you know, I wouldn't just highlight some of the 
key protests that have happened just in the last three, four months that I can think of, you know, with that probably didn't get any attention. And certainly how the government responded did not get much attention either. Brian, you might remember a few months ago, there were protests in Henan after a series of banks, kind of smaller banks, were actually engaged in a mass fraudulent banking scheme and basically preying on a, a many customers. And there was a big protest staged outside the banks and because they had their monies frozen and, and all sorts of things. And the government stepped in quite swiftly and, you know, arrested quite a few people involved in this banking scheme and then began offering compensation to the customers that had their money frozen. A few months ago, also, there was the Tangshan incident where there was a violent attack against several women in a restaurant and that was filmed by security camera and it created a national outrage and particularly online. And this sparked a response of a huge investigation that, you know, implicated uh, corrupt local police to criminal gangs. And I think there was one person that was sentenced to 24 years in prison as a result of the quick response. I think these types of things where protests are actually quite common and response is often made doesn't get highlighted. But back to sort of the larger question of when corporate media decides to cover certain protests, you know, I can think of countless examples like I was remember being shocked and maybe I shouldn't be shocked because that's naive to be shocked that when, you know, in India, when we saw the massive in the middle of COVID, the massive farmers protests, we're talking about, you know, upwards of 100 million people protesting. And did any of the mainstream corporate media cover it at all? None. It was absolute science. One of the largest historic strikes of the, you know, working class and peasantry and it wasn't covered. So now we have basically in a few cities, a few hundred people here and there, and you know, with quite unclear demands, let's say, and that's getting headline attention, front page news. So I think we should look at this with a very critical eye without even having entered sort of conspiracy theories or whatnot, but what is the agenda behind this? And this is also not new, right? The kind of narrative of, oh, the CPC is about to fall or Xi Jinping is about to fall. I mean, we've seen this in just the last two months. What was it? Around October or September, there was the kind of news that started spreading, including some of the mainstream channels around the military coup against Xi Jinping. And then shortly thereafter, very similar messages were focused on on that banner that was dropped in Beijing. One banner dropped in Beijing becomes international news. Isn't that interesting? So I think there's a lot of, um, to read with a critical eye, this narrative that's being constructed for a long time coming. And I guess that's what I want to say about that. Yeah, very good. Because having, you know, looked at China for a long time myself and paid careful attention, going back to Tiananmen Square in 1989 and the protests that went on for seven weeks that basically paralyzed the government until June 4th, 1989, when those protests were essentially suppressed by the government during that entire time, the U.S. media, and in particular, some of the news networks like CNN, they sounded like the voice of the protesters. I mean, literally, CNN in June 2nd, June 3rd, June 4th, 1989, was saying Chinese military units from the People's Liberation Army have defected and gone over to the students and blah, blah, blah. None of that was actually true. What was the U.S. media, which is a powerful media, it's got an impact globally. It's not just inside the U.S., was attempting to actually be a coordinator of the protests. By the way, in 2009, when the, the Green Movement protests 
took place after the election, this, the re-election of Ahmadinejad in Iran, some of the protesters were using Twitter and Twitter was about to, to coordinate like where people would gather to protest against the government. And Twitter was scheduled to take a maintenance break for three days and Hillary Clinton at that time, Secretary of State, insisted publicly and privately with Twitter that they cancel their maintenance break so that protesters could continue to use these social media platforms to continue the protest. So it's clear that there's a selective engagement and endorsement and support for some protests. And they turn out to be, whenever protests are taking place against governments that are targeted by the United States, governments the US would like to obviously overthrow, carry out regime changes, pretty open about that. Then the protesters become a human, the human material for what might be, what might be sort of a revolution or a counter-revolution. So it's a manipulation of human sentiment. Obviously, things in a situation like China managing COVID, a complicated epidemic in a developing country with ICU beds that are far fewer in number than the United States or Western countries, trying to keep people alive, a government problem that they're trying to manage, that becomes just like sort of kindling for a fire that the US media wants to promote. They want the color revolution, and it has nothing to do with you know Chinese people or Iranian people or Cuban people or Venezuelan people. It's like these governments have been targeted for overthrow for geostrategic reasons, and it's this terrible manipulation. And it would seem to me that most people in China, like most people in Cuba, most people in Venezuela, most people in Iran, in the targeted countries, are aware that there will be this kind of manipulation. So it doesn't mean they don't want to express themselves or protest if they have a grievance, but there must be a high degree of awareness in China, it would seem to me, that the U.S. media isn't actually the friend of China or that the U.S. government isn't actually the friend of China, given all of the other animus that's directed against China. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things is China is a, a large country, so there's a lot of media that gets created here and there's social media platforms like Weibo or WeChat where people consume their own information and their own interpretation of the world. So in a way, just by sheer size of the country, there's a kind of being sheltered. Some people call it censorship, but I would say there's a kind of sheltering from just the bombardment that is the Western hegemonic media. That being said, I think as part of any healthy society that there is discontent, there's debate. I think we've talked about this at length before in previous interviews and conversations. You know, there's a kind of patronizing view towards Chinese people as if we are all of one mind, that there is no debate. If you look on any social media in China, you'll see the debate, you'll see the discontent. And I mean, it's not an accident or sort of just a lip service that even as the article I was citing from Zhejiang Daily was talking, saying, hey, we see that there are frustrations at the local level. It's actually kind of solidarity with the people saying, OK, officials, let's kind of get this back into gear, especially with some of the cases where some of the conflicts are happening. That's part of a healthy society. This is a very complex situation that we are living. But let us not be fooled by the Western corporate media that there is going to be sort of a regime change or a will to topple the government or a mass you know, mistrust of the government. No, just because we are tired, 
from three years of a pandemic that is really hard, that I think there's an exhaustion all over. But that doesn't mean that there's a, you know, I'll give one example, which is quite interesting. When the easing of the policy started happening and, you know, kids were encouraged to go back to school and everything like that, there was an interesting spike of all of a sudden all these parents calling in saying, oh, my kid has a stomach pain, you know, his foot is hurting, his teeth, are, a lot of toothaches for a reasoning of not going to school because some people actually were worried about, you know, the COVID, their virus. These are definitely people who do not want to end with zero COVID, don't want the freedom to get COVID or give COVID or whatever. And you'll see that some people, you know, have anxieties about these easing measures. So that part will never get reported on by Western media, but this is a complex and huge society. How you manage that sort of public opinion and how the real concerns of people is not easy challenge. So I think this question of finding a soft landing, figuring out this is a difficult transitional period, but you know, there's a lot of people who say, let's keep it the strict, you know, zero COVID measures because it feels safer. And so how do you balance that? I mean, you can't just do it by force. You have to do it through kind of other ways of building consensus and hearing the discontent, hearing the sort of challenges at all levels. One of the keys, it would seem to me, Tings, and you can expand more on this, for the Chinese government to have the soft landing to come out of zero COVID, you know, to move eventually into this other sort of healthcare regime in terms of managing the pandemic would be to, you know, find ways to protect, especially the more vulnerable parts of the population. You mentioned that China is an aging society. Also, I think culturally, and you can expand more on this in terms of the status of older people, the status of the elderly, the more revered status of older folks. And you have a very pretty low vaccination rate still for the elderly. I think it's some of the numbers I've seen is about 40%, which means that if the, if the Chinese government's policy was to basically have the U.S. government policy, which is, okay, we're normalizing mass infection, big parts of the elderly in China will die. And I'm wondering just culturally or sociologically how impactful that would be and how important is that in terms of what the Chinese government's go forward policy will be in terms of getting a parts of the population who maybe are reluctant to get vaccinated to become vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting we're having this conversation now. Not only was vaccination, the promotion of vaccination, part of the 20 measures that came out two weeks ago, but just today, a new set of guidelines from the central government was put in place specifically about vaccination. So just to give you an overview, around 90% of the Chinese population is fully vaccinated. That means at least two shots. But as you rightly said, when it gets to the elders, it, it dramatically decreases. So there's about 76% of elders above 80, this is the most vulnerable population, that have received one dose. So it's actually improved since the last time I think we talked about this. But in terms of those who have been boosted, that dramatically drops to 40%. So in terms of the, the kind of guidelines or the kind of urging from the top epidemic prevention body of China was to look focus on this elderly vaccination. And so what they also did was shorten the interval between shots. Previously, it was six months between shots. Now they've lowered it to three months. And they've also approved more combination, vaccine combinations that can be put together, especially for elders, you know, 
who many of them have existing health conditions that need to be, you know, kept in mind. And also there's also the question of some of the younger children that still need to be vaccinated. So the vaccination campaign has been improving, but until we can get the elders vaccinated to an adequate level, at least, you know, let's say 80% boosted, we're not going to be able to see the sort of soft landing take place. So this is going to be one of the prime kind of objectives right now. And I think it's a good move forward, actually. One of the sort of voices that is starting to come through in the mainstream media, it's, it's minor. It's minor. It's not the major voices. This is it. The revolution is on in China, which by that they mean the counter-revolution. The government's going to be toppled. The people have turned against Xi. Again, I would call that BS, bad sociology. So, you know, there's that kind of coverage, but there is this little bit of reporting that there's trepidation that if there's disruptions in China, China is so integrated into the world economy as part of the production, the global production line, basically, that it could be, be very impactful for U.S. capitalist corporations. Then some parts of the U.S. media say, well, wait, 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 this could actually hurt Apple because, of course, iPhones are made, you know, a lot of them, maybe the majority in China. Anyway, let's just talk if you... And Christmas is on its way. So, you know, people need to get their iPhones. And Christmas is on its way. So, so there's this now conflict within the capitalist media, which they want, they desperately want to overthrow the government in China. And at the same time, they don't want to do anything to interfere with capitalist profits. Anyway, you've undoubtedly observed some of this as well. Just, I want to get your comments real quick and then... As we start to move towards the, the finish line, I want to talk a little bit again with you about Dongcheng News and your very important assessments of the recent 20th Party Congress. But let's just first talk about that if we could. Yeah, I mean, that Foxconn is, is always a, a question, and, and I'm sure some of your listeners have seen that kind of protests at Foxconn. And, and it's interesting because there's sometimes, I think, this contradiction of maybe it's a uh, lack of clarity amongst the U.S. bourgeoisie of how they want to paint the evilness that is China. And one of the things is, okay, oftentimes China or Chinese government or even Chinese people are blamed for the malpractices of multinational companies that exploit Chinese workers, but that's a China problem, not, not actually the companies. Or when multinational companies come and pollute the environment, that's a China problem, not because of the multinational companies. But we see that across the third world, and it's been one of the contradictions that we live, but somehow gets to be used against us. That being said, I think, you know, without going too much into the Foxconn workers protest, but in terms of this thinking that, oh, they want freedom, you know, this these two kind of recent waves of, of protests, it's actually opposite because a lot of these workers, you know, some of them walked home for, you know, a day because they were worried about the conditions. They, they were worried about getting COVID and they didn't feel like it was safe. It's actually very opposite from a thinking of, you know, uh, let's get rid of these COVID policies. They were worried about their health, among other questions of their condition. So I think you put it quite right when, you know, when it comes in contradiction or maybe threatens some of the interests of U.S. capital, then sometimes they, you know, have a different tune. And so I think we live in an interesting moment. I'm not trying to diminish some of the challenges that are existing, but I think these are sort of cracks when we can read the media with sort of a critical eye about China and some of these cracks of how this narrative is being constructed. And it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent as much as they try to paint a sort of portrait. 
And so I guess that's the main thing I would encourage your, your viewers, and maybe that's a good segue to why we, we do Dongsheng News, is just to provide some facts. We're not trying to claim anything other, you know, I, we don't even need to go into, oh, who's behind the protests or what? We're not, I think that's not necessary. Let's just go with the facts. What is happening? And then make your own judgments. Yeah. And again, for people who are reading Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, watching CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, doesn't matter whether it's a liberal media or conservative media, you couldn't but come to the conclusion that China is on the verge of this kind of revolution against the Communist Party or counter-revolution. And again, what you're telling us, Tings, before we get to the 20th Congress, what you're saying is that, yes, there are protests. They're pretty minor. There is a obviously debate that goes on all the time in Chinese society. There are protests that go on. There are strikes that go on by workers. Mostly, by the way, they're solved when the workers' demands are met. All of that happens contrary to what people who consume their news from the West think because the U.S. media doesn't portray it. But there isn't a discrediting, a delegitimization of the Chinese government on a mass scale. In fact, if anything, the Chinese people have to, in the main, recognizing that there are problems in any society, be quite proud that their society and the government that manages that society has made so many impressive social, economic, ecological achievements. I mean, that's your view. That's the view of Dongsheng News based on your accumulation of facts and reporting and investigation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just probably the general consensus. As much as this is one of the most difficult times that we are living but that's that's the state of the world right now. So there are economic questions, you know, uh, especially for young people, the questions of unemployment, questions of housing prices, the question of, you know, how to have a family and afford that, like any society. But these are questions that I think exist in the context of pretty firm and positive support of the government. And as you said, a kind of pride to understand that the last 40 years, some of the economic social gains have been really dramatic. And most people have been lifted and felt those improvements materially in their lives, in their living memory. Of course, with, you know, beginning with 1949, but the dramatic increases of the last 40 years are really felt by a vast majority of people. That isn't discounted by the complicated moment of dealing with COVID in these last three years of quite an exhaustion with just living with a virus that, you know, humanity has never had to deal with before. One other major contradiction, not one other, but another major contradiction for China, of course, is the international environment, generally speaking, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that started in February 2022, the war that continues to go on. The sharpening of international tensions, the adoption by the U.S. of major power conflict as the U.S. military doctrine, meaning to prepare for war with China and Russia, a very, very, very complex international environment, very complex domestic environment. And we're just touching, this is the tip of the iceberg. When, If you think about the ecology of climate catastrophe, I mean, the issues facing humanity are very great, meaning humanity in all countries. But the 20th Congress of the party reaffirmed basically the leadership of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is now in a third term. There was obviously continuity and there was change. 
I don't want to go because we've covered so much already into great detail. And I want to encourage all of our viewers and listeners to go to Deng Sheng News to get a more complete assessment. And your assessment of the Congress has been very in-depth, very comprehensive. But if you had one or two big takeaways from the 20th Congress in terms of either continuity or change, what would they be? I think it's a great question. And this is also one of the shames, I think, that the Western media, if you just consume Western media, you lose the pulse of it because, you know, the focus was on Hu Jintao or the focus on questions of security or Taiwan. But when you look through and study what was actually talked about, that's not at all the focus. The focus was actually, I think, two takeaways, I would say. One was a surprisingly, I would say, a strong and even harsh assessment of the, the party itself the shortcomings, especially of the last 10 years, you know, focusing on questions of corruption, what was called hedonism within the party, questions of money worship, the detachment of the party from the people, and some of the questions of inequality or unequal development and distribution of wealth in the country. So these were really quite harsh self-assessments and the shortcomings of the party's own work. And then second to that is what is it proposing, you know? And it's a proposing, and I think this is quite I think revolutionary in this true sense of the word is an alternative project to Western capitalism, especially around the question of modernization. And in it, that would be the core message, I think, from my reading and our collective reading is around this, you know, a China model for socialist modernization that is distinct from, you know, the one that we know from the West all too well, especially in the third world around colonial plunder, military occupation, you know, exploitation of the land and labor. I mean, that is what has been characterized by the Western expansion of the last centuries. And here was a strong affirmation of a project of socialism, not only in China, but something that could not be a, a sort of a roadmap for the rest of the world, but something that the rest of the world could potentially learn from. So in that sense, that strong statement and strong sort of affirmation, I'm not so surprised that, you know, a New York Times or a BBC or Washington Post want to discredit China at any given opportunity, because what we're seeing here is it is a new era. It is also strong statements against a hegemonic model that I think has has seen a lot of death and destruction for the rest of the world. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We've been talking with Tings Chak. Tings is with the Dongsheng News Collective. She's also a researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. She's the author of the book, Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Tings Chak, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.